It's been a great study designed to take us through the whole story of the Bible. For some of you, this may be the first time you've ever taken Scripture in this 10,000-foot viewpoint, but our goal was not just to give you the story and help us as we continue our journey through the details of God's Word each week, but one of our goals was to give you a tool for telling others. You know, one of the things that people talk about all the time is that they don't know what to say when people ask them. What exactly do you believe? And we get tongue-tied. So we have these sales pitches we've created. Four spiritual laws, steps to peace with God, and we all get into this presentation mode, like we're trying to sell some eternal life assurance policy and get people to sign on the bottom line by saying the sinner's prayer, all of which is uh, man-made tools to try to tell the big story to people. But why not just tell the story? And here we have this beautiful six-fold thing that any of us can talk about. What do Christians believe? Well, there was creation. God created. There was chaos. Even in that, God seeks. There was covenant. God promised. There was Christ. God saved. Today, there's the church. God sends and invites. And what we're going to look at today is consummation. God restores. Or a better way to put it is, God wins. (laughs) We have lots of different views on what we call end-time theology. Rapture, tribulation, millennium, the nation of Israel. There's lots of debate around those things. And unfortunately, because of that, we spend more time being divided than being united around the end picture. And today, that's what we're going to focus on. I have my own opinion of that. People Ask me, are you a pre-tribulationist, mid-trib, post-trib? I say I'm a pan-trib. I think it'll all pan out in the end. (laughs) That's old. Thank you for laughing. (laughs) Thank you very much. That's really not the point. The point is that God will win in the end, and his children will be there and be part of it. And that's what we're going to look at today, is how God ultimately restores all things to himself. There are two concepts about the future that tend to dominate Western culture, and in many ways, the church. By the way, if you're looking for an excellent book about future things and about some of the ways modern thinking has found its way into our view of these things, N.T. Wright's book, Surprised by Hope, talks about how these two ideas affect even Christians' view of heaven. And the first myth is the myth of progress, or what we might call evolutionary optimism. It really came of age uh, in the era of the Enlightenment and the Renaissance, coming out of the Dark Ages to this great era of human advancement. And it gave birth to this notion that we had, as a human race, unlimited capability to improve. And if we just apply ourselves, the more we know about the universe around us, the more we educate ourselves, the more we explore our creative energies, we are going to get better and better. There will be no more hungry people. There will be no more wars. We will grow out of it. Of course, today, other than politicians and some religious leaders, many of us have outgrown that altogether. There is still sin, there is still death. With all the progress, there are things in this world that as a race, we're not gonna be able to take care of. And in fact, in spite of our notions of self-improvement, we know that we're the cause of the very suffering that we think will outgrow. The second myth 
is the myth of souls in transition, to use a philosophical term. It was Plato's original idea that influences Hinduism, it influences Gnosticism, and even much of our Christian thoughts today. The idea that the physical world is either an illusion or is itself evil. And we are in transition towards the state we were meant for, which is disembodied, spiritual, the flesh is evil, and so we're just on our way. Think about that old hymn, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through, my treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's open door, and I won't stay at home in this world anymore. Oh, Lord, you know I have no friend like you. That's souls in transition philosophy. This world is evil, and what we have in front of us is our own personal cloud. We think of heaven as that, and we think of our loved ones as in this eternal state, and we think we're just going to go there and join them, and that's going to be it. So as Christians, we've been influenced by both of these ideas, but the early church had a very powerful vision of the future that was neither of those things. The early church believed that God had in mind for not only people but for creation, the very thing that he did in Jesus at Easter. That, in fact, all of creation would experience resurrection. So this whole rebellion, this whole chaos, the whole human journey will not thwart God from getting exactly what he had in mind at the beginning. One of the first things that's important that I help you understand when we look at Act 6 is that it's not just a return to Act 1. Act one, the garden, was God saying, okay, I've laid the groundwork. What I've made is very good, but now the human race has a task of making more of it. And we blew that. But here's the point. Act six, God gets there anyway (laughs) in spite of us. It's the fulfillment of what God started in the garden. In Act 1, where God dwells with man is a garden, a world that is yet to be developed for men to create culture and to create beauty out of what God gave them. In the consummation, it's not a garden. It's a city. It's a fully formed culture of God's people where God dwells. Today we live in a time where the kingdom has come. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And then based on that authority, that rulership, which is the kingdom, go and make disciples. So there is a presence of the kingdom of God now. The church has the keys to the kingdom. We are to extend the reign of Christ. We bring life. We bring the authority of God as we go. So there is a presence of the kingdom, but not in full. It's what we talk about the kingdom being now and not yet. It's the presence of the future. And so I just want to give you four things that characterize the age in which we live. Today we live in a time, first of all, of overlap. God reigns in the church, but sin and death still reign in the world. We have several times in the last 12 months brought up a chart that showed you that concept, that the new age began in Christ, but yet we still are in the human age as well. There is an overlap, and sin and death still reign, but yet we are citizens of the kingdom of God. Better yet, 
Paul refers to us as ambassadors for that kingdom in this world. Just like when you go to New York City or Washington, D.C., and you go to one of the embassies of the ambassadors for the different countries, when you're inside that embassy, you are officially in that country. You go into that property, and you're in Switzerland if it's the Swedish embassy. Well, that's true, the kingdom. When two are gathered, Jesus says, I'm there in the midst. We bring the kingdom with us. We're ambassadors for Christ. But yet, we live in a broken and fallen world. So even as we try to act out all these things that we're meant to do as citizens of the kingdom of God, the reality is there's another world at the same time. Now, this is an interesting thing. The early church, in fact, the the apostles did not see the world getting better. But they also did not see the world getting worse. Now, that might go against what you've been taught, where it says there will be wars, rumors of wars, and But there have always been wars and rumors of wars. That's why it says it will be like it was in the days of Noah. We are living in a broken world. There is sin, there is death, there is evil. It will always be here. Even with each cure for each disease we find, death will still win. New diseases emerge. With each war that we end, another war erupts. Even when people are healed miraculously, even when the blind see, Those do not last forever in this world. Even Lazarus, after Jesus raised him, died again. The whole point is that we are charged with extending the kingdom, showing the kingdom, growing the kingdom of God by having others come under the reign of God through Christ. That's our job. But the world doesn't get fixed until God steps in and restores until what the Bible refers to as the day of the Lord. Do you understand that? So we're in overlap. The second, we live in a time of mission. God's people are taking the good news of his kingdom to our world. Third, we are in a time of invitation. The call of the gospel to enter into life in Christ is still available to everyone. In 2 Peter, where he talks about those who will say, where is the promise of his coming? Because everything is as it has always been from the beginning. There's again that idea that the world isn't changing. It was broken. It's still broken. Where's this promise of God's coming? And then Peter says, understand that God's timing is different than yours. And he's not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So this season is God sending out the invitation so that people will respond to the gospel, so that a people will be prepared for the consummation when it comes. And then finally, this is a time of waiting. We're extending the kingdom, but yet we're waiting for the kingdom to come in full. This is an important thing for us to understand. We're not the only thing waiting. All of creation, the cosmos, everything in God's creation is longing and waiting. And that that brings us to our first passage we're going to turn to today, and that's Romans chapter 8. I'm going to begin reading at verse 18. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, 
but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship and the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Here, Paul reminds us that creation along with us is eager for God to come. Notice the language that's so similar to the Exodus. Creation is looking for God to liberate them. Notice the similarity to Jesus' words about our human experience of conversion as being born spiritually. So we have these concepts, recreation, new birth, being set free from our spiritual captivity, and Paul very clearly applies those same concepts to creation itself. And someday, there's going to be a resurrection. That's the third concept, resurrection, that God applies to nature and creation as well as to us. There will be a resurrection, and and what is corruptible in me will be done away, and I will be incorruptible. My wife would like that to happen right now. (laughs) What we see clearly is this dual concept that we are to extend the kingdom of God as we bring the gospel and we bring justice and mercy through the gospel to the world around us, but at the same time, sin and death will always be there. And then there will be an event, a birthing, a resurrection, a day, when in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, God will make all things new. And we see that picture in Revelation chapter 21. If you write in your Bible, just at the very top of 21 or in the margin, Give a new title to this chapter. God wins. And then hyphen, we win with him. I'll begin reading. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha, I am the Omega. I'm the beginning and I'm the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this and I will be their God and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and liars, 
they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. There are three aspects of God restoring or renewing new heaven, new earth, and new Jerusalem. We're going to look at new heaven and new earth first. And what we see here is a complete recreation. In the various passages, including 2 Peter, we see that the earth and the heaven as they exist today, which, by the way, speak of two dimensions that coexist, the eternal and the physical. That's really what is being spoken of here. They are going to be consumed and done away with, and God will recreate the heavens and the earth. And here's some of the things we see. The old age will be done away with. Right now, we are living as citizens of the new age of God while we live in a world that is experiencing the old age of sin and death. But God's going to finally put all that away, and there will just be the new age of the kingdom of God. Second, sin and death will be destroyed once and for all. In the previous chapter, we see the judgment seat of Christ. And besides judging humanity, Satan himself is judged. And the last thing that will be judged is sin and death cast into the fire. Sin and death will be done away with forever. I love that. Imagine that. Imagine a world where people are not committing the vile things that we still see being committed today, not just in the Mideast, but in homes in our city, in streets in our city, in families in our city. Imagine a world where kids weren't being victimized by the brokenness of their parents. Imagine where our friend Dave Hartman will never have to deal with cancer again. Imagine a world where sin and death have been destroyed. It's hard to imagine because we live in the presence of sin and death. It's a reality to us. Third, everything will be restored to God's very good, pure, and perfect state, which we called in week one shalom peace. Remember, one of the things that made God's creation very good was that everything worked together, including the human race. We had our unique role to play, and the word that we used to describe the whole scene was shalom, which is not just peace as in lack of hostility, but wholeness. What chaos brought into this world, striving, working through thorns and weeds to produce in the land, struggling in childbirth, all these things that were part of the curse of sin and chaos in Genesis chapter 3. All these things are done away with forever. Pain and tears, regret and shame will be no more. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And then we see this glorious picture that Jesus will return. The reign of God will become an uncontested reality throughout the world. Can you imagine a world where people stop saying, we're in charge of our own destiny, I am king of my own castle. Imagine a world where people are shut up, where no one can contest anymore that God reigns. And because this corruptible will put on incorruptible, we won't even get to say, told you so. (laughs) 
That part of us will be purified. <laughs> Shoot. <laughs> Revelation 21.5, let's say this together. Behold, I am making all things new. These words are trustworthy and true. New heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem. We're going to read on now in, in Revelation 21 where John gets a clearer picture of the new Jerusalem, which he sees at the beginning of the chapter. Pick up with me at verse 9. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, three on the west. The wall of the city had 12 foundations. On them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. I'm going to go down to verse 22 for sake of time. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Beautiful image of what John sees as the new city, the new Jerusalem. Now, note the very first thing the angel says to John about this city. What does he call it? The bride, the bride of Christ. What, according to Scripture, is the bride of Christ? It's his church. So whether or not there is going to be a literal new Jerusalem, that's yet to bear out. But what we do know here is described this beautiful image of you and me, the church. Ephesians 5, Paul says, even in describing marriage, I'm speaking of Christ and his church. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved his church to the point that he gave up his life for her that he might present her to himself as a bride without any spot or wrinkle. And as we move forward through all of time and all of the events that will transpire before the new heaven and the earth, finally we see the great work finished and the angel says, look, there is the bride. There is the bride. Its gates are open on all sides so that all nations can enter and be a part of it. And it matches Peter's words in his first epistle when he says, God is building a spiritual house out of us. We are living stones. 
We are going to be a place where God dwells. What God is doing right now in creating a new civilization known as the people of God, where there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female. We are the fulfillment of God's promise of the people of God. What He is doing right now will be the centerpiece of His new heaven and new earth. Let me just talk about this new Jerusalem. First, the city of God replaces the Garden of Eden. I talked about that before, but it's important that you see that imagery. The city of God represents the development of culture, the use of the natural things and resources that God put in the first creation to create a glorious result that bears the mark of God and the mark of his redeemed humanity. God will live forever with and among his people. As a renewed humanity, we will pursue our original vocation. We'll get to do what God always intended for us to do. And what are some of those things? We will be culture makers under God, sharing and bringing his wise caring rule to the earth. We and all creation will worship Him perfectly, and the whole world will be full of His glory. This is one of those moments where I wish I could find some new words. I wish I could find a new level of eloquence that would capture what John is so stymied by that when he first is exposed to it, he falls back and faints. I find the words on that screen and on my paper fall short of the glory that is to be revealed. And I, I long for it. And here's the thing, all creation longs for it. Revelation 21, 3, look. God's dwelling place is now among the people. He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. Thank you, Father. So what's the story? The story starts with creation. God created a world in perfect harmony and peace that reflected him in every way. It was very good. He created the human race and set him in a garden, the center stage of the drama, and made man his image bearers, men and women alike, told them to be fruitful, rule over the world, fill the world, make more of it for his glory. God created. But then chaos entered our world. We chose instead to rebel against God's good authority and rule over our lives. And as a result, sin and death and chaos came into the world, into our lives, into our hearts, into our nature, and into nature itself. But in the midst of the chaos, God seeks. The catchphrase in creation is God's words, it's very good. The catchphrase in chaos is God's words, Adam, where are you? And then covenant. God begins to enact a plan that had been established in eternity past to redeem the race that had fallen into chaos. And he creates a unique people through Abraham miraculously. In the covenant, God promises and he says, I will bless all nations 
through your seed. And then ultimately, 1,900 years along, Christ. In Christ, God saves. God took on flesh and lived for a while among us, lived the perfect, chaos-free, sin-free life that none of us could live so that he could die the death that we deserve, but none of us could survive. And in his death and resurrection, he succeeded in victory over sin and death and the curse. And then the church. In the church, God sends this message of forgiveness and restoration to the world through us, through his new humanity who have by faith been transformed by the work of Christ and now become his body, his hands and feet, his voice to the world. And the key word here is go into all the world and preach the gospel to every nation. And we're still doing that today, but someday, and my hope would be so soon, but we remember God's timing is not like our timing. And he's not willing for any to perish, but when God's ready, the day of the Lord will come and there will be a consummation. And God will put away sin and death forever. Creation will be new, and we will once again dwell in it, and God will be all in all. And we will be his children, he will be our God, and we will dwell with him. That's what we believe. Do you believe that? Amen. Same. There isn't a person here that can't tell that story. But here's the thing. Here's how we're going to end it. The question is, how will you end your story? This is one of those things that permeates the whole story of God, and that is that God lets you choose your destiny. There's this definite teaching in Scripture that God is sovereign over even our salvation, that what he purposes to do, he accomplishes. But yet we see from the very beginning, Adam and Eve have a choice, and they make that choice. God says, here's the story I've laid out, and they choose a different ending. And we see that pattern all the way throughout. We see both God's sovereign plan being unthwarted by man's decisions and God wielding his way in the hearts of humanity throughout all of history, including those who are to be saved. But yet at the same time, we see man constantly choosing, constantly proving <laughs> that all he can do is bring chaos into the world. And even to the very end, God still says to people, you choose, you choose. Where do we see that? We see that in this final statement at the end of Revelation 21. Nothing impure will ever enter the city, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. As beautiful as the picture of the new heaven, new earth, and the new Jerusalem are, there is as dramatic the picture of those who will choose a different ending for themselves, and the end will be eternal destruction. So in the same way, the book of Revelation ends where Genesis begins and somehow finds its voice in Moses when he speaks to the Old Testament people of God and is about to send them into the promised land. 
And he says to them, I set before you today life and death, prosperity and destruction, and God's call. The most important one for you in this moment is Moses' words to those children of Israel. Choose life. Choose life. So I'm going to offer that to you today. Some of you have been following hard after God. You've been showing up. You've been studying. You've been listening. You've heard now the whole story, and now you know you get to choose which side of the ending you're on. And you can choose today to come under the reign, the good, gracious reign of God in Christ by surrendering your life to Him, by finding forgiveness of sin, by simply saying, I believe, I believe, I profess Jesus is my Lord. I choose God's good reign in my life in Jesus Christ. If you've never committed your life to Jesus Christ, you can join his story right now. Father, I pray that we will be inspired by what is in front of us, by what is in front of all creation as you bring to consummation what you are doing today. I pray for those here today who are still wrestling with their part in your story, that today they will see very clearly how they choose their ending. Father, I pray that they would choose life today. In Jesus' name, amen.